Welcome to Travel Stories with Tom Kim and Trevor Mountcastle. This week, we talk about Japan Airlines as a trip to Manila. Tom, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. So, Tom, we're talking about Japan Airlines, and I think this is actually a really timely topic because we've just heard that Japan is going to be opening on October 11th. Hopefully, we'll have this episode out fairly close to October 11th. Are you excited? I'm really excited. I'd, I'd love to go back to Japan. I know we flew through it, but we didn't actually get to enter it. Exactly. Yeah. So we had a, all the experiences of the airline side without the destination. Well, it's some of the best part of it, I think, in, in a way. You know, it's great to fly Japan Airlines. It's a big treat. It truly is. So, Tom, let's get into why we traveled and where we went, right? So we, we flew Japan Airlines to get to Manila, the Philippines. You want to talk a little bit about why we chose Manila? Well, I think it's mostly just for convenience or because it was a destination that worked. I would say, you know, like a lot of times, you know, I think the journey was the big goal in this particular trip. You know, we wanted to fly premium class. We wanted to fly somewhere far, you know, and, and Trans-Pacific obviously is, I know, both of our favorite to find a nice route that takes us over the Pacific. So, you know, I think it was kind of, uh, not about serendipity, but, you know, it was really cool one afternoon at your house, I think I was over there, when we noticed, hey, there was all this first class award availability on Japan Airlines. Exactly. And then the challenge I think we ran into was that we could get to Tokyo. However, we couldn't necessarily get anywhere onward in a premium cabin. And that sort of opens up, to borrow a, a Sam and Robert term, a puzzler. Yeah. What would we do? How would we get to Manila? What were we willing to do to make this trip actually bookable and work? It was a very tough math problem. You know, I've, I think uh, we had to do a lot of algebra. <laughs> so just, just a quick recap. As you said, we found the way out at the house. We were able to figure out that we had the, the first class flights from JFK to Tokyo Haneda. And then the way down, we just didn't see that premium space. But you were able to make it work, I think, through multi-city, such that we were able to add another leg in economy from Haneda down to Manila. Yes, I know the sacrifices we make, right? Yeah, but it wasn't that easy on the way home. No, it wasn't. So the problem I think we ran into was we had this kind of whole world view, a lot of flexibility in kind of using miles or a little bit of using dollars, but we were really limited on how much time we wanted to take away. And so we were looking at ways to maybe go around the world. I think we saw, was it Bahrain? I think we were looking at a lot of revenue fares originating in Asia. And, you know, if you look in Southeast Asia, you look at Gulf Air, you look at Oman, you look at Saudi, you see a lot of good premium fares, you know, originating in like Bangkok, originating in like maybe Singapore, originating in all kinds of places in Southeast Asia. And I think that was one of our focus areas, but it was really hard finding ways to position to Southeast Asia and then position back from wherever those fares actually ended up going to. A lot of those one-way fares, I think, ended up in Europe. Or the Middle East. Yeah, that's a great point. It really felt like trying to travel, in, and this trip was in August, just trying to travel anywhere in Asia was a big challenge. 
whether it was revenue or award. I would agree with that. And I think award was even more challenging. I think we found very little space anywhere. I think it was kind of a desert when it came to any kind of, and like you said, we had a lot of flexibility with different currencies. You know, we were looking about things, you know, we could have used thank you points. We could have used membership rewards. We could have used ultimate rewards. You know, we had pretty much everything on the table between the two of us, yet we still couldn't find anything. Exactly. And that, that kind of leads us to what we ended up deciding on. So I think we were texting back and forth a week or, or so, maybe not even a week out from the trip. And we had found a uh, one-way first class on JAL from Narita in Tokyo to JFK. I think I was on a cruise ship when that happened, by the way. I might have been somewhere in the Atlantic. <laughs> that just makes the story even more entertaining, I'd offer. So here we, we go. We find Tokyo to JFK again. A little kind of less inspiring the, the second time for Jalaf, but it was a way to get home. And I, I remember monitoring every single day to see whether I could find that Manila to Narita leg. And it just wasn't coming. I mean, this, is the, this was some really stubborn availability. The paid fare wasn't even that attractive. Yeah, it's definitely, I think, one of the most expensive uh, coach tickets we've ever bought, I think. Exactly. So, so here we are. You know, the final piece of the puzzler is we need to get from Manila to Tokyo to Narita, no less, because Japan is closed. So we can't go from Haneda to Narita like you could in the old days. And we're looking at only a very limited amount of airfares of flights, really, that we could fly because Narita, unlike Haneda being a 24-hour airport, Narita is only open 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. And we knew that the flight that we were taking to get us to JFK left at, what, 11, 11 a.m.? 11 or 11.30? Yeah, I think so. Maybe 10 a.m., if I'm not mistaken. So we had to take a red eye out of Manila. So here we are. We're looking at different fares. I think there were only like one or two flights that could even be an option for us. Yeah, I think what even complicated more at, at Narita is, you know, Narita has multiple terminals. And again, we can't enter Japan. So it's not really clear if we can even go ahead and arrive at one of the non-JAL terminals at Narita. Because they don't, they don't all connect their side. Exactly. So at this point, I think we resolved ourselves to having to pay for a, a cash fare. We knew that the fares were pretty crazy. So we, we even resolved ourselves to say, okay, fine. If we can make it one way in economy, we can do a round trip in economy between Tokyo and, and Manila. So now we were kind of left with, well, how do we want to pay for it, right? If you do the, the, the math, if we were able to find a good American Express fare, and I think, actually, I don't even know that, that we could have used the 35% back on that because it was an economy fare, even though it was international. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually have that option, believe it or not, Trevor. I don't have a, a business Amex. I know you're going to probably give me a hard time about that. I am not going to give you a hard time, but that would have been roughly 1.54 cents of value, 1.53 cents of value. I remember doing the math and I was really surprised that like it's fractionally more attractive than using a, a CSR, which I think you also don't have, at 1.5 cents of value. You're just eating up all my miles and points cred, huh? You know, you're, you're, you're pointing out all, all the things I don't have. Well, I'm sure you'll figure out a way to point out the premium card that you have that I don't. In fact, there's a couple of them at least. But so here we are, we're looking at, do we burn points at 1.5 cents roughly of value to, to kind of pay for this? Or do we, do we just pay for it at a, at a hide? And I think we ultimately decided that we were just going to pay for it at a hide just because it felt like the points that we'd be using might be of greater value elsewhere. 
I just say that we paid, you know, the equivalent of YQ on maybe Air France or, you know, British Airways. Yeah. And that's a pretty good equivalent. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about that little bit of a puzzler of how we booked it. Let's talk about the day of experience. Here we are. We're at JFK Terminal 1. We're waiting. I think I had flown in the night before, so I just hopped a cab. You had flown in on, I think, Delta, and you just kind of took a stroll to meet me over at the uh, ticketing area. That's right. I, I was in, I think it was Miami the night before, because, of course, I was on a cruise. So I, I uh, flew straight from South Florida right into JFK. So here we are. We're checking in. And normally, when you check in, it's not really anything special to talk about, right? You deal with the surly agent. They look at your COVID card nowadays. They look at your passport and they hand you your your boarding pass. But it wasn't exactly that way with Japan Airlines. And it was only the start of the beauty of how they really incorporate culture, their culture, the Japanese culture, into the passenger experience right from checking in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the first time I've ever been at the check-in area of a Japanese airline before they open. And so they clearly have a little bit of a ritual. You know, they do bow to each other. They, I believe, have some kind of chant or something, you know, that they're doing. I'm trying to remember exactly what else they did at the very beginning there. Yeah, yeah. What I remember is, is they sort of all spread out along, you know, not just the first in the business area, but but all the way down for all those counters, in front of the counters. They sort of said good morning and that check-in would begin and then they bowed to the passengers. And I thought that was an interesting thing. I, I had never seen that before, but I'm not usually, you know, waiting for that check-in. So, you know, we started our JAL experience that way. Very good, very simple, I'd say, for, you know, essentially checking into a, a country that's closed. We'll skip over kind of the lounge experience because Japan Airlines uses the Air France lounge. Interesting, but probably nothing to write home about. Nothing too memorable in that lounge. Again, they do use that Air France lounge. It's very pretty. But the actual, you know, services and food and alcohol available, not all pretty subpar or mediocre, if you ask me. Yeah, I tend to agree. Nice views. That's about it. So boarding time comes. We end up boarding our, our JAL first class flight. What was your view of, of kind of that boarding experience, that kind of welcome on board and, and, and your initial opinion? I know that you and I had both flown that JAL seat before. However, I know for me, it was a good five, five six years I don't know how long it had been for you. It probably was a little bit less, but, you know, again, you know, it was very much a kind of a homecoming. It had been quite a while since I've sat in first on an airline. And I'm trying to think it's probably the first time since the pandemic started. So it was really exciting. It did feel a little bit like a homecoming. Yeah. And, and the thing that struck me is, is we're talking about a fairly old product, right? That Japan Airlines first class products probably, it might even be 10 years old. Yeah, at least. Yeah. And the thing that I was just as astonished with, and I'm not usually down to this level of detail, but I remember sitting down and looking at it and kind of observing the leather of the seat and stuff, and everything was in perfect condition. I sat on a, a United Polaris flight like three months ago, and it was already falling apart. And Polaris is only, what, five years old? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. Everything was pretty pristine, but, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, this is probably a little bit of a stereotype of, of Japanese service, but I, I would imagine they're pretty, they sweat the small stuff. So, you know, I think, I think that probably is indicative of, of, of their service culture. And speaking of the small stuff, as we pushed back, preparing to depart, that's the other one wonderful kind of introduction of Japanese culture 
that you get really from the beginning of the experience. The ground crew, the baggage handlers all kind of line up. And this happens, it seems to me at least, regardless of where they are, but they line up and they bow to the plane and then they wave. Yeah, it's pretty cool looking out the window. You know, definitely if you can get a window seat on your your next Japanese airline flight, I definitely would keep an eye out for that. You know, it's just pretty cool. It's just, it's nice to see the people below the wing sitting there and kind of saluting you and, you know, wishing you well as, as you leave. Absolutely. So here we are, we're, it was probably an hour of taxiing on the ground, but that's, you know, standard JFK. And we get in the air. First off, let's, let's just kind of talk a little bit about the seat, the, the hard product, if you will. How would you describe it? Because I know that there are other airlines that have a similar seat. The configuration is, is a 4-4, so it's a, a, an eight-seat cabin, and it's 1-2-1, one, one, but it's the full space, right? It's not like the reverse herringbone where they're angled. No, you have the full, that full area of space. It's similar to what the Thai Airways A380 first class has. I think it's probably similar-ish to what A&A has, although A&A is like their kind of square-ish suite. Yeah, I don't know if it's quite comparable to the new version of ANAF. I haven't flown that yet, so can't speak to that. But yeah, I would say it's also similar to the older Korean first class product as well. It's very open. It's not particularly private. I mean, I would say that's one of the, the negatives. But, you know, got a decently large screen, a reasonably good table, you know, and you've got plenty of space. I mean, you've got ample space. Width of the seat is nice and wide and fully reclined. It's pretty comfortable. And they do also give you a mattress pad with the... With some options, but I'm a little bit skeptical about what the real difference is between the the soft and the firm mattress pad. The labeling of soft or firm. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe part of its placebo effect, you know, it's like, oh yeah, so much softer now. Yeah, yeah. And, and they do have kind of a posturepedic pillow in addition to kind of a normal pillow. So it really kind of, you know, it's just those small little details that I think kind of separated a little bit from from some of the other airlines. Yeah. The hard product, though, I would say is probably one of the lesser differentiators compared to the other premium classes, at least that I've flown. I, I would say where they really shine, though, is the food, beverage, and service. I think that's where you're going to start to experience you know, what really makes Japan Airlines a little special. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So they have two, the two different menus, right? So they have the Western menu, and then they have, is it the Asian menu or the Japanese menu? I don't want to make a faux pas. I'm pretty sure it's just the Japanese menu. Yeah. So they've got the, the Japanese menu, the Western menu. You don't necessarily have to have all from one or all from the other, at least in, I think, in our experiences. I actually mixed and matched mine. Uh, you know, I really do like some of the starters, but I generally favor the Western entree because, you know, after you've had a, the Japanese starter part of the meal, it's usually enough seafood for me. That was the experience that I sort of observed. I'm not a seafood fan, and, and so the Japanese menu didn't really do too much for me. I think I had a couple of different items over the course of the two flights from that Japanese menu, but largely it really was very heavy on the seafood. Yeah, that's pretty typical, and I, I would say that is one of the negatives if you are not a big seafood eater. I would say the same with ANA. You know, I think you may have some difficulties finding exactly what you want to eat on the menu, but hey, if you're adventurous, if you're open and you're an omnivore, then yeah, this could be very interesting. So Tom, what were some of your highlights? What were some of the dishes, whether they were appetizers or entrees, that really stuck out and, and are still kind of in your memory, even just a, a month and a half, two months away? I can remember one of the dishes was whelk. And I, unfortunately, it stands out because whelk is a kind of snail. And I had one bite and I was like, that's enough snail for me. 
I would not have even known Welk was a snail. But I will say, you know, they did have caviar in one of the directions. I think they do caviar in one direction, and I think they do Wagyu beef in the other direction. Actual Kobe beef, I think. And both of those were really amazing. I, I think uh, I think we both had the Kobe steak, and that was uh, definitely a very nice piece of meat. Yeah, and, and the caviar was nice. You know, every airline seems to do caviar just a little bit differently. The way that Japan Airlines did it, you had your individual serving. You had the typical kind of egg and I think onion sort of accoutrements with bellinis. Am I pronouncing that right? I think you are. Yeah, that's the fun of, of, of writing so many things and then, then suddenly you get to talking about them. And then it was sort of an interesting salmon pate, which I had never seen as an accompaniment to caviar before. I thought it worked pretty well. I, I enjoyed my, I, I ate all my caviar. That's all I know. I enjoyed it as well. I, I don't always go through everything. As I said, I'm not a, a huge seafood fan, but I always try to save some room for the caviar. You know, I, I do remember another unique thing, and this was on the way back actually, but they did serve us breakfast and the flight attendant was extremely excited to actually serve me the strawberry jam. And first you're thinking, what the hell is interesting about strawberry jam? Well, this one is actually grown in Jal's airport farm. Who knew that Jal actually ran a farm and then and actually, you know, grows their own strawberries and then takes the time to create strawberry jam? But yes, they do. And not only do they do that, but they have a little placard explaining it and and showing you pictures of of where they're grown and it was very tasty strawberry jam. Yeah, I I did try that as well. They 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 were quite proud and, and that wasn't the only thing that they were proud about as I recall. I think there was a a whiskey and I, I don't have that name in front of me. I, I do. I thought you might. Yeah. And actually, once again, I had a flight attendant. And actually, I think this was on the other direction. I think this was on the way to Japan. And the flight attendant, again, was from Kyoto. And that is the area that has this particular distillery that, that sells, that brews the Yamazaki brand of whiskey. And I have to tell you, it was a wonderful drink. You know, And I'm not, I'm not a drinker. I, I think most of you who know me well... I'm a pretty lightweight, so you know I finished this whiskey and it was extremely smooth, and very much a pleasure to try. I have tried a handful, and I do have to say that that was probably the smoothest whiskey I have ever had. And I think I think we looked; it was something like fifteen hundred dollars a bottle. So I, I suppose at that level, it probably should be. Yeah, you can taste the difference. I mean, I, I, it's it's hard to find a a bottle of whiskey that is that smooth. So as we start continuing to talk about the bar area, other than the whiskey thought it was interesting that Japan Airlines serves kind of two of the more high-end champagnes. The way out, they served the Rodinger Cristal. And then the way back, they served Salon, which I've never seen anywhere other than on, on Japan Airlines. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I mean, once again, they mixed it up a little bit. They let you have a little bit of luxury one way and then a different kind of luxury on the way back. Exactly. And I was impressed with it. I was impressed, honestly, with both. I try a lot of champagne personally, but I had not had either of those before. I might have had the Cristal way back when I flew Japan Airlines the last time because I was flying to Japan, but I had never had that salon and I thought that was absolutely fantastic. As much as I love champagne, and, and I did try both of those and they were good, but you know, I'll be honest, I, you know, I, I, I probably do not appreciate the champagne as much as I did a couple of the other beverages. You know, one of them was the very expensive Queen of Blue iced tea, which is bottled iced tea in a wine bottle, no less. Not particularly cheap, but I know we both tried that, I think. And I don't know that it's iced tea. It was served in a wine glass. It was served chilled. I'm sorry. I, it, 
I think it was probably be a little bit of sacrilege to put ice in the tea, but it was served chilled. And in a wine glass, uh, or a champagne glass, as I recall. Yep. You know, Jell also has another kind of quirk. You know, they, they have their own juice. Did you know that? I feel like I should have, because I think you enjoyed that, didn't you? I enjoyed it on multiple legs, as it turns out. They have Sky Time, which is a juice blend that is unique to them. I think it has like peach and grape and a couple of different other juices together. But, you know, again, it's another little interesting thing. You know, it's very, it's, it is their gel, you know, distinctive drink that they have. Yeah, the, the catering definitely is a pretty unique experience. We talked about a lot of the little things, the attention to detail that Japan Airlines has. You know, we also talked about the bedding, the firm and soft, but ultimately we made it to Haneda and we had a few hours there. So we were able to make it over to the Japan Airlines first class lounge. Tell us your thoughts about that one, Tom. What's well, no Lufthansa first class terminal? <laughs> had to sneak that one in, huh? Well, you know, I, you know, I hadn't had a chance to drink during this entire podcast, so. <laughs> Touche. Okay. So, so what were your thoughts of, of the Haneda Japan Airlines first class? It's a pretty decent first class lounge. By the way, you know, Hane- both Haneda and Narita were like, kind of like ghost towns. You know, I think we had very few international flights, you know, during the times that we were happened to be laying over uh, in both of these airports. And so the, the first class lounge, first of all, was pretty deserted. You know, there's probably only a handful there. I would probably put the number of passengers probably in the same vicinity of the number of staff. Yeah, Tom, I tend to agree with you. It did feel like a ghost town at times, but then, you know, some of those flights, because the few flights that were flying just seemed like they had a lot of people on them. I mean, you know, they're flying a lot of wide bodies out of Haneda. And so you go from this, everybody's kind of pretty well spread out across a pretty big international terminal to, you know, they're all in one gate area and then it's just like any other flight. But let's take us back to the lounge. The last time I had been to this lounge was 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 well pre-pandemic and and they had kind of a nice layout, a little bit of buffet, a little bit of a la carte that you could sort of go up and and sort of order. This time they sort of seemed to have adapted to the pandemic a little bit more. Yeah, I mean you they had QR codes, they had apps, you know, I think you did most of your ordering in the app or the website if I remember correctly. And the selection was pretty limited. I mean, they had some good stuff and, you know, we definitely didn't go hungry. At least I didn't, but the selection was pretty limited, you know, and, and I had been at this particular lounge before pre-pandemic and I, I definitely think that it's definitely a fraction of what they originally had. Yeah. And a couple of the other things that they had sort of had in the past, shoe shining, not, not that we go out of our way to have our shoes shined while we travel, but they used to do the shoe shining in, it, I think it was the red lounge or the red room. They don't do that anymore. They do have a little bit nicer champagne that's kind of hidden back there versus what's in the general area, which was kind of a nice little bit of a surprise. They used to have massages. I think they've since transitioned to massage chairs. I don't know if that was before or after the pandemic, though. The Red Room is still pretty cool. You know, there's, there's a lot of interesting artifacts in there. They had, you know, lots of interesting aviation decorations and things like that. So, you know, it still has a lot of the charm. But yeah, as you said, it's missing a lot of the services, and but it's still a pretty nice place to sit down. Some very nice, comfy leather chairs, you know, very much like kind of an old style like lounge or club kind of feel. So it's a nice place to have a drink, have a chat. I, I believe that's what we're doing quite a bit of the time there, uh, and we were there for several hours. I think we were enjoying yeah, some and- nice, comfy seats and some good conversation. Yeah, that Red Room or Red Lounge really is the place to kind of enjoy just kind of relaxing, just all the different memorabilia, the travel theme is probably some of the best in any lounge I've ever been in. 
in the main area though, I think we spent some time there and it's nice because it's kind of an, at the, on an upper level. So you've got a nice view of at least a couple of the runways. That view gets worse as it gets later in the night because, you know, the view is only, only as good as, uh, as, as what you can see. Briefly, the lounge also had showers. I thought those were completely everything you needed to freshen up before then hopping on in a five hour or four hour economy flight. Yep. I know that we were both kind of a little apprehensive, you know, I I think uh, probably you a little bit more than me, to be completely honest. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was so apprehensive that even within an hour of, of, of departing the lounge, I was going to the front desk to change my seat because I was watching that. I was stalking that seat map like a, like a stalker. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Stalking it like an eagle. There we go. I was stalking that seat map like an eagle because I thought that there might be an opportunity where we could get some economy lay flats for that flight. And I think we both got lucky with that. I think we were Uh, pretty successful. We're flying on a 767. We're, you know, fairly back in the cabin. I think each of us had three seats, three seats or four seats to ourselves. We did. We definitely had a whole row to ourselves. And I was actually pretty impressed with that flight. If that was how domestic travel was, I think economy wouldn't be that bad. You know, four or five hour flight, they served a tray of a meal, even had Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I think they were offering beer, wine, and soda and fruit juices, as, as you mentioned, your favorite. Definitely had a glass of Sky Time while I was on the plane. Sky Time is for flying times. <laughs> for all we know, it is a Suntory pro- product, you know, maybe. <laughs> uh, you are no Bill Murray, my friend. Oh, my friend. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we've dropped enough Easter eggs that hopefully somebody will know what we're talking about. People know what they're talking about. Exactly. Okay. So... Overall, flight was, we didn't die. I, I don't even think our backs were hurting after that flight, impressively enough. I thought it was a pleasure. You know, I, in both directions, one of the best economy flights I've had. The meal was impressive, I think. You know, it, first of all, you know, both of these flights were essentially red eyes. We boarded these flights well after dinner time, and I enjoyed the meal. I thought it was fun. I mean, it's, it wasn't anything big or anything too fancy, but, you know, considering it was, had lots of different items on it, had you know, actual metal cutlery. It had, like you mentioned, ice cream. It had, you know, like this, this would probably be on the order of what I'd expect in premium economy. Yeah. For most airlines, it would probably would be, but, but here Japan Airlines is doing it in, in regular economy. So we won't talk too much about the way home. I think we talked about kind of the differences on the, on the JAL first flight. Let's just talk a little bit about the differences on the way out compared to the way in, just in our experiences. So leaving Manila, there are a few lounges. The Japan Airlines Sakura Lounge, I found not to be very impressive at all. I think I remember convincing you that we should go across the, uh, across the way to a priority pass lounge, which was only marginally better. Yeah, I would say that the lounge that they use in Manila was, was very cramped, a little bit claustrophobic. I've been out to the, believe it or not, the priority pass lounge, even though it wasn't less crowded, it was in some ways a little bit less claustrophobic. It was almost like double the size, it felt like. Yes. So that was probably one of the one of the notable differences. And there are a bunch of different lounges, but they break out half the half of the gates and you can't really go to the other half of the gates so far as as it looked to us. You know, what was notable was, you know, again, not to bring the coach flight back up, but on this way back, you know, unfortunately like with the fir- unlike the way there, you know, we didn't get to each get a row to ourselves and in fact we were seated next to someone, you know, in coach in the kind of the middle section and 
being kind of in the front part of the rear section, you know, we did see that the emergency row seats were available. But interestingly enough, the flight attendants were were pretty good about protecting those seats because apparently those are for additional fee type of of seats. But upon looking at the roster, I mean, they think they, they I guess they for whatever reason they told us no, we couldn't move there. But they did check to see what our status was, and they saw that we were both executive platinum or one world emerald in this case, and decided, oh, well, you know, you guys are higher elite status. Let's go ahead and let you sit there. Yeah, that that was a, ni- a nice little surprise. Didn't let us select those seats when we had originally booked, but because we did have that One World Emerald, we were able to ask nicely, and those flight attendants were were really gracious about that. Yeah. So. And I would offer that made a big difference, not just for you and I, but also for the two people that were, uh, it was like a mother and a, a child sitting in between us. Yep. They got extra space. We got extra space. And, you know, they made use of the resources that weren't going to get sold anyway. So sounds good to me. Win, win, win. So Tom, take us to the Grand Hyatt Manila where we stayed. We arrived, what, 5, 6 a.m. in, in the morning into, into Manila? Yeah, we, we got there pretty damn early, you know. So we stayed at the Grand Hyatt in Manila, which is actually, I believe, the, the tallest building in Manila, if I remember correctly. I think we, there might have been some conflicting answers on who, what the tallest building in Manila is, but it, it's definitely one of the tallest buildings in Manila. And I think we had a little bit of discussion where to stay. You know, I, I think we originally were looking at maybe a little bit closer to the to the old city, but I, I think we decided to stay in kind of this newer modern area where the, the Grand Hyatt state is. It's, I think, the, the global city area of Manila. Yeah, we were looking, I think, at three different hotels. We were looking at the Hyatt Regency. City of Dreams. Yeah, the City of Dreams. And then we were looking at the Sheridan Marina Bay. And the uh, interesting thing was we got to go to two of the three hotels, obviously the Grand Hyatt where we stayed. But when we kind of went out and about, We'd also been able to go to that Sheridan Manila. And let me just tell you, you did a fantastic job in convincing me that the Grand Hyatt was the right answer. I think we made the right decision. Absolutely. The Sheridan is nice. We ended up having a drink in the lobby. But that's about as much as I can say about it. The area nearby was not terribly exciting, other than the fact that you could kind of get to the old city. Really not desirable to just kind of walk out of the hotel and just find a, find a nice little place. Definitely just a a very different experience compared to the global city over where the Grand Hyatt is. One of the things that surprised me about Manila, quite honestly, was I would say the the area around the Sheraton was kind of what I pictured in my mind, you know, like what most of Manila was going to look like. And definitely a good part of Manila is that way. But the part, the newer part by that global city area, you know, it was different than what I was expecting. And, you know, in some ways it, it was, it was quite nice because, you know, you really could just go out. You could go have, you know, dinner at Din Tai Fung. You could go have, you could go walk the mall. You know, you could do a lot of things that quite honestly are some of the things that I like to do when I'm in Singapore or Bangkok or Kuala Lumpur or, or Taipei. You know, it's, it, you can pretty much do those same things in Manila. Yeah, that's definitely exactly right. And a couple of things that I found interesting, we'd found a nice Filipino restaurant one day for a nice meal. And then uh, the second day, we haven't realized that Din Tai Fung was there. Now, obviously not Filipino food, but, you know, a little bit of comfort food that we don't have here in the D.C. area. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you only get the opportunity to have Din Tai Fung, yeah, when we're not in the D.C. area. So <laughs> a little bit of a treat regardless. And the thing that probably th- struck me most, and I felt like I should have expected this, right? But being in the global city, it didn't feel like I expected it, was how cheap everything was, how inexpensive, I should say, everything was. It felt more like it could have been in Singapore but the prices were Bangkok or less. I would agree. I think it, it's it's definitely kind of in that same category. And 
value for money, especially for the U.S. dollar, I think we, we did pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the hotel. I think we both noticed when we were in Tokyo, before we'd even landed in Manila, that they had updated, upgraded us to Grand King Suites. I think we were kind of like opposite corners of the same floor with different views. We had gotten to that to the hotel fairly early, 5, 6 a.m. in the morning. They escorted us up to the Grand Club. And I think uh, we ended up having breakfast there. And then 8 or 9 o'clock, they were able to give us our, our room keys, if I recall. Yeah, if you know, if I think about it, I think we managed to stay 60 hours at that hotel and only paid for two nights. Yeah, an incredible value for 12,000 points a night. I would agree completely. And we definitely made use of that lounge, which was a beautiful uh, lounge on the top floor of that building. Beautiful views, excellent spread. The breakfast there, easily one of the best lounge breakfasts, even by Hyatt standards, if you ask me, in Asia, you know, which is, that's actually saying quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had made to order Eggs Benedict. Yes, on a, on a very, very nice artisanal piece of bread. It, it was definitely a true highlight. And then, you know, obviously, because the lounge is as high as it was, it, it, it afforded just a great view of Manila, especially considering we didn't have as much time as we wanted to, to be able to kind of get out of the city and kind of tour it. And also, it just happened that a number of rain squalls were coming through each day. Just being able to watch them from, you know, as high up was kind of entertaining. Yeah, it's amazing to see the the swath of the city that you could watch that storm kind of cross, you know, basically from one side of the city all the way out to the bay, pretty much, it seemed like. It truly was pretty impressive. So, Tom, anything else we want to talk about about Manila? I definitely would go back. You know, I, I think Manila originally to me was going to be less about the destination and more about the journey. Uh, you know, it was a means to an end to be able to have a nice premium airline trip. And a fun time with you. But otherwise, you know, I, I didn't have particularly high expectations. They were, I think, exceeded in my mind. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think Manila itself would probably only be a couple of nights kind of as a stopover on a way to another another Philippines island, perhaps. But the quality and the comfort of the Grand Hyatt definitely is a great place where where you can sort of reacclimate, you know, from a time zone perspective after a long travel itinerary just to get to the Philippines. There are beautiful little areas to see, both kind of in that old city area and also just being able to kind of walk outside of the hotel. There were like three or four malls nearby. There were plentiful options of any different kind of cuisine that you were looking for. And it was just, you know, really kind of no stress or very low stress to just kind of explore. Yep. I would agree. It was a great place for us to do our, our, our you know, our two night stopover between our two flights and Great chance to kind of relax, to enjoy ourselves, have some good food, and, and also, you know, get get out, do a little shopping, and, and see a couple of things before we headed back out of the country. Okay, Tom. So so we had that long trek home. We get back to JFK. Of course, we don't live in JFK. We don't live in the New York area. We have to position back to home. So this is where you had come up with a pretty good idea. There used to be this great promotion that National would have is, what is it, rent two days, get a free day? One, two free, I think. Yes. One, two, three. I hope they bring that back. I, I really do too. And so what I've observed is, is, you know, rental cars are still, maybe it's not rental, rental car apocalypse, but rentals, especially one ways are pretty costly now, but you had a way, you, you had a better way. I did. So, you know, unfortunately the, it wasn't a one, two, three rental, but you know, I am a national rental car customer and they're probably one of the better rental car companies out there. Cause you know, the course of the Emerald 
aisle service where you can just walk out and get your car. That's obviously one of the big benefits of, of renting from them. But they also have, I forget, I forget how many it is, but you know, after I believe 10 rental days or five rental days, it's, you do get a free rental day. And the best way I find to use those rental days is these one-way rentals between airports probably is, is the best option when you're doing positioning. Yeah. I was pretty impressed because I know, I think I was looking at one ways and you're talking about over a hundred dollars, sometimes $200, depending upon what rate you can actually make work. Most of the rates that I've seen lately are not even allowing one-way rentals. And I don't know if that's just because of the uniqueness of, of some of the rates that I've been trying or if it's, you know, particular airports that just don't want to lose their cars. I'm sure it's hard for the rental car companies these days. You know, it's a little harder for them to manage their fleets given the cost of automobiles and they don't have kind of the regular business customers that they used to. It's true. That said, those free days, for one reason or another, every time I've tried to use them, they've worked even when codes that I've been trying have not. Yep. It, it works so, in this case and, you know, it saved us a little bit of money coming, coming back home from JFK. That's just a great tip for our listeners here. So Tom, we've done this pretty fun back and forth. Really, it was focused on on enjoying that Japan Airlines first class product and really kind of, you know, that that homecoming of getting back into a first class cabin and, and that first class experience. What would you like to leave our listeners with? You know, one of the things that I, I would say is, man, was that an expensive trip <laughs> in terms of getting on there. And But you know what? It really was fun. I would do it again. You know, even though we had many, many hours of, of sitting in lounges and positioning, getting there, you know, waiting for flights. And quite honestly, you know, we it was a little bit nerve wracking booking the thing because, you know, it wasn't until probably the last day or two before the flights that we even had all of our, our tickets finalized. But I guess that's maybe that's normal. But I think it was worth it. I think with all the stress and all the that's why we're in this hobby. We, we, we love this stuff. We love the travel planning. We love all things aviation and, and we love all the wonderful things about flying in premium classes of service like like Gel First. And this was a great experience to try to enjoy to an extent, you know, an area that while while the Philippines is open, not a lot of people can get there. I mean, it was hard enough for us to just figure out how to get there. So I felt like the crowds were a little bit less. I felt like this was one of those kind of experiences, kind of like, you know, for those that that traveled internationally last year, you know, you know you're seeing a, a world that you might not see for another hundred years. Yep. Definitely a unique time to be traveling. This is Travel Stories. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.